Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 43, where I invited listener Wendell Moss onto the show to help us break down the timeline based on what we heard from David Jacoby, which really helped to lay out the movement of where David was, where Terry Hobbs was, and how all of that related to the actual record and intersected with other witness statements. I am joined remotely today via Zoom by Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey! And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, that's me. Or as his Zoom screen says, the amazing Mr. Zach. Is that what it says? No, read it again. The amazing Mr. Weaver. I'm sorry. There we go. Yeah. Uh, and so after a quick little break here, we're going to go ahead and get started with your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So before we get started, I have a question for you. I know myself, along with a few other listeners, are wondering why we're ending the season where we are. Yeah, I saw uh, a post from uh, one of our listeners, Tank, who has been a long time long time interested in the case has been studying the case for years and has some connection to a lot of the even the people and involved in the case uh i was wondering the same thing along with other few other people and the, there's a couple of reasons there the, the big one is you have to understand when we stop or in this case kind of pause a season we're still working on the case we're still digging deeper there's still a lot happening behind the scenes right now that i just can't talk about but there's stuff happening trust me and we pause the season because I have to take what we're doing and write it into a 30 to 45 minute episode every week. And when we get to a point where I can't really talk about things that are happening and there's nothing new for me to necessarily talk about to where I can't be consistently producing episodes, that is usually where we will go ahead and, and stop or pause the season and move on to another case. And then we come back. So, so we're not done with season five, we're absolutely not done with our investigation into the West Memphis three. I'm just not making episodes about it right now. So when new things come up, when new things happen, we will address it. Um, and I know we have some other listener questions along the same lines about, you know, why we didn't talk about 
some inconsistencies uh, in David Jacoby's old statements compared to now and the same with Pam and why we only talked to Pam and we didn't talk to other members of the Hicks family, uh, uh, her other sisters besides Joe Lynn. And you know, the, the reason behind that is kind of the revelation you guys all saw me come to in the, the filming of the TV show was nobody's recollection is going to solve this case at this point. And, and th- that's my goal. My ultimate goal here is to solve this case. So, yeah, and, you know, there's there's been talk. It was on West of Memphis. We heard from one of the Hicks sisters that Terry was doing cleanup or doing laundry. And, there, you know, there, there's a lot of these other little anecdotes about, you know, his behavior or other people's behavior. But the bottom line is, number one, you know, these, these aren't things people told the police then. I'm not saying they're not true, but, you know, we can't go back and say, yes, this is verifiable based like we did this week with David Jacoby. Where, you know, when he's saying, for example, Terry said he spoke with someone before he came back over around eight. And then we can go back and uh, Dana Moore and Don Moore say, yeah, they did talk to him. And Don Don says it was around eight o'clock. You know, you can corroborate those things when they're telling, you know, when, when years later they come forward and say, yeah, well, he was doing laundry and it was weird that day or he was cleaning up. It's just not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to. It might perk some interest. It might make people think one way or another. But it's not getting us any closer to to solving the case. Right now, my position is the only way we're going to solve this case is through forensic testing and science. That's it. We're not going to solve it from a new witness statement. And we talked about a lot of the reasons why that is. So I just don't see a benefit in what will essentially be certainly, you know, um, dragging people's names through the mud even more than have already been done. When ultimately it's not going to do any good. What we need to do is get this evidence tested, and that's where our focus is at. All right, our first question comes from Russell. I'm a little fuzzy on how the muddy footprints that David Jacoby observed on the pipe bridge fits with the overall timeline, and how that information was used by law enforcement in search efforts. Were the muddy footprints still observable once the discovery site was established, and did they offer any forensic value? The, so the t- the timeline bit of it is. David came across those muddy footprints right before dark, as it was getting too dark for him to feel that he could safely cross the pipe. So, you know, we've determined that, and based on when Regina Meek was on the scene, we figure that happened 835, 840-ish, uh, so just before dark. And how law enforcement's involvement with them was really nothing at all. You know, we, we, we've ascertained that the officer that David Jacoby said he told about the pipe and told about the footprints was probably Regina Meek. We know she was down there at that time. And she testified that someone gave her some indication that the boys might've been down by the pipe, who I think was probably David Jacoby saying there was bike tracks in these muddy footprints. She walked down to the pipe and was swarmed by mosquitoes and it was getting dark. And she said, oh, boys wouldn't be down here. And she left and then she went to Bojangles. And it was never brought up again. There's nothing in the reports about muddy footprints on the pipe. Nothing was ever done. Once the discovery site was was found, when the boys were found the next day, the pipe had been trampled across a bunch of times by then. And even David said when he and Pam and Jackie Hicks walked along the edge of the Blue Beacon Woods and went to the pipe to to try to pick the tracks up on the other side, because, you know, the bike tracks had stopped at the pipe, that by that point, there was a bunch of tracks going back and across. So other people had crossed the pipe by that point. So the the footprints at that point were were of no use. Jody says, can you address the talking point of the nons that the defense has the results from DNA tests conducted prior to the Alford plea? 
They seem to believe the defense is deliberately hiding these findings. It's absolutely false and absurd, actually, that they continue to bring this up. And there's a number. I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to give them that much oxygen. But there's a group of people that believe the West Memphis Three are guilty. And this is their big talking point. They like to say, well, why doesn't Bob ask Lori Davis for those 2011 results? And she has them or they have them and they're hiding them. The truth is, and the frustrating part is that they all know this, is that the prosecutor received those results before anyone else. When I went to the prosecutor's office a couple of years ago, specifically looking for those results because people had asked about them, and the response I got from the prosecutor's office was they had received them. There was nothing there. You know, the hairs were dog hairs. There was no DNA. There was no useful information on any of that testing. And I said I wanted to see the results. And the prosecutor's office, not the defense, the prosecutor's office said they couldn't find them, that they had lost them. And they even went through emails where where the results had come from, when they'd come in and said, well, you know, I know I have here emails that we have them. In those emails were multiple emails from both Jason and Damien's lawyers to the prosecutor's office. This is after they were released berating them because they weren't giving them the results, meaning the prosecutor's office has those DNA results and they weren't turning them over to the defense. And and uh, Damien's, uh, Jason's attorney, Phillips Bourne, I know, wrote several letters. I think Steve Braga wrote several letters demanding that the prosecutor turn over those records. The prosecutor's office claims they lost them. So, that's what's going on with those. I have asked Lori for them. She says she hasn't. She can't find them. Um, I've talked to Steve Braga about it. He's looked for them, and no one seems to have them. But they're not being hid by. If they're being hid by anyone, it's by Scott Ellington's office. And the reason this is so frustrating is there was one of these nons that are that are spread. They're continuing to spread this this misinformation out there. Was the one that was directing me to go find them. When I did that. She didn't believe me, so she contacted the prosecutor's office, and I have interactions, I think her Facebook messages with her, where she told me they told her the exact same thing they told me, that they got the results, there was nothing of significance in the results, and that they couldn't find them. And still, there's this group out there claiming that Damien has the results, he's hiding them, there must be something in there you know, that proves that he's guilty, and that's why they're being hidden. And I just haven't tried hard enough to find them when, in fact, they know every one of those people. Um, I don't remember the listener's name that asked this question, but every one of those people that are saying this to you and whatever group you're in knows 100 percent what I just told you, that it's the prosecutor's office that said they lost the results and that the defense was pissed that they hadn't gotten them. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Karen says, Jacoby said in his second interview that Hobbs told him, quote, they walked right by the bodies, which he vehemently denies doing. 
My question is, how close to the discovery site was the hair found that some people believe could possibly be David's? No one knows. And this is something I addressed last week. And, and, and as I said last week, if I'm wrong about this, someone please tell me. I would love to see the, the report where that hair was collected. But based on my research, and I've even, people have even shared with me that some people have said, oh, it's easy to find on Callahan. Well, if it's so easy to find, then just show us. Where is it? Because all we have is a reference to it in a June 29th, 1993 report that there was a hair found on a tree root near the crime scene. There's never any information on when it was collected or where it was collected. So we just, we don't know. We have no idea. Uh, I've always just been told it was somewhere remote. It wasn't in the discovery site, like down in the creek bed, but somewhere in the area. And like I said, people have said it was 13 feet away and and it was found on May 12th. But based on what I know, and I'm not claiming that I'm 100% right on this, what I'm claiming is based on all of what I've been able to research is no one actually knows when or where it was found. Ashley says, I listened to Terry's deposition last week and in it he is asked if he had a phone back in 1993 and he said yes. Can we go back over this and clear this up, as in the episode it is said that he didn't have a home phone, which is why he called the police from Catfish Island. Yeah, so th that deposition is the reason this is confusing, because the, the evidence seems to indicate they didn't have a phone. And that is, you know, you have, I think Pam has said that they didn't have a phone. David said that not only that he doesn't know if they had a phone, but he knows when they needed to make a phone call, they would always go down to his house to use their phone. And so the evidence would seem to indicate that they didn't. And I think there's even, because my question is, how did Pam get a hold of her dad to come down? And I think somewhere there's a statement somewhere where she says she called them from Catfish Island also. So all that evidence suggests they did not have a phone. But then, you know, 14 years later, whenever it was, when Terry was, was deposed, he said they did have a phone. So, so that's why it's confusing. I think Terry is probably misremembering because the older evidence seems to indicate that they didn't. And, in, and even, you know, like I said, for David to say that he remembers them coming to his house to use his phone, I don't know why he would possibly have that memory if they had a phone at their house. Brittany says, have you looked into the Hobbs family secret? And if so, do you find any validity in it? A little bit, yeah. So for those that don't know, anybody who's seen West of Memphis is familiar with the Hobbs family secret. Zach, you're familiar with it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the Hobbs family secret was basically some friends of Terry Hobbs' nephew said that his, that his nephew had told them that he had overheard the, the, uh, Terry with maybe his brother or some, some family members like in a basement playing pool, and they were talking about that this was the Hobbs family secret, that they all knew that Terry had killed those boys. It's very compelling. Uh, the problem is later, the actual nephew was, was, was asked about it, and he said that that was all bullshit, that, that he never said that, and that's not a thing. Now, could he be lying? Sure. Could the other kids be lying? Sure. But the, the problem is, again, there's no way to know for sure. The person they're talking about claims he never said what they're saying that he said. So there's, there's really nothing that we can, we can do with that as long as that's his position. Yeah, I have a hard time believing it, to be honest. It's a bunch of high school kids talking about what they know. They, they know that Terry Hobbs is a suspect or, or could be a suspect. So, I mean, it's, it's just them. I, 
I don't know a good way to put it, but it's just them shooting in the wind. You also can't forget about the big reward that was being offered at the time. Yeah. Casey says, did you reach out to the Moors and the buyers for interviews? It seems all about Pam and David Jacoby, but there are two other families involved. Yeah. So, I mean, I I did interview uh, Mark Byers. Mike, you were with me when we went to his house and sat in his living room. Yep. I remember. Yep. So I had a long, long interview with Mark Byers and I've talked to him a few times since then. Um, The Moors. Yeah. I think, I think I reached out to them back two years ago when we first started doing this and didn't receive a response from them. But then also I was, I was shown some screenshots from Todd Moore in other Facebook groups talking about the podcast and how he, I mean, he basically, he's not a fan of me or us investigating the case. He's the one, he, he's one of the family members that believes the West Memphis three are guilty. And therefore he really wants nothing to do with me. But yeah, we talked to Mark Byers. We talked to Chris Byers or Chris or Ryan Clark, Chris's brother. And we talked to Don Moore was the only Moore that would talk to us. We've talked to people from every family. So I know it was brought up about maybe questioning, you know, some outside of the family, you know, uncles, aunts. I mean, do you have any feelings about interviewing them? No, the only people that I've had are, I think Tank had brought up that uh, Sheila Hicks and maybe one of the other Hicks sisters was willing to talk to me. And I appreciate him, you know, reaching out on that. But as as I said, it just no no one we're going to talk to at this point is going to give us any information that's going to solve the case. You know, they they may give us information that makes us believe or looks makes somebody else look more guilty, but it's not going to solve the case. I think that you know, again, I keep repeating this over and over again, but right now, I think we need to we need to keep pushing to test the evidence. And once the evidence hopefully gets tested. You know, then we'll see where we're at. And if we need to, you know, I'm not going to give up on this. We'll keep digging in any way that we can. But right now, our best bet at solving this case is to get that evidence tested. So I know this has been brought up a couple of times, and maybe I'm not completely familiar with it. But is Ellington leaving office? Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, because I, I, I've addressed it on the fan page, but not, I don't think, on any of the episodes. Uh, so, yeah, so Ellington was elected as a judge, elected or appointed. I, th- I think he was elected. But he doesn't take over that judgeship until January of next year. So he is still the district attorney between now and then. Because people have asked, should we be talking to the new DA? But there won't be a new DA until next January. Lauren wants to know, have you reached out to the district attorney who will take over Scott Ellington once he becomes a judge? I have not. And to be honest with you, I don't know if that election has occurred yet. Uh, I believe I I may be wrong here. Um, I haven't because again, I'm hoping to get this evidence tested and and have this stuff um, available to us long before Ellington leaves office. I think that we still you know there's way too many months left for us not to be putting the pressure on him. But I usually the DA elections are at the same time as like the presidential elections, like in November. So I I don't think there is, and and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there I don't think we know who the new DA is yet. Speaking of Ellington again, have you had any correspondence? I mean, I know you've reached out several times. I know several listeners have. But I mean, has there been any correspondence with even a secretary or anything notable? Uh, During the filming of the TV show, I I did speak with a secretary. I think it was was actually on screen when I actually talked to a human being and asked him to call me back, aside from all the voicemails and and the uh, emails and stuff. And so the producers, but 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 other than that, no, I've had no direct communication with him. And I also want to point out, too, because there's been people that have, you know, they're saying, you know, well, he's not going to give that evidence to 
you know, some random guy, some random podcaster, and there there was somebody that just spammed our our main Facebook page a couple of days ago and was like, "It's ridiculous," and that would never be used in court. To be clear, I'm not asking Scott Ellington to hand me the evidence. What we're asking for is for him to through a chain of proper chain of custody and in coordination with the defendant's attorneys to ship the evidence to the lab to be tested and back. I am not going to touch any of the evidence. I mean, I thought I thought that was obvious, but it seemed like it, based on the 25 comments this person left on our Facebook page, uh, apparently it wasn't. But but that that's what we're trying to do is to is to get him to release the evidence to be tested, not to hand it to me. Pamela says, is there a plan for legal action in the likely event that Ellington won't be compelled to release any evidence for testing due to public pressure alone? And is there a time frame for implementing those actions? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the next step, if we can't get him to release the evidence, is the, the defendants, either all of them or any one of them, will file a motion with a judge to request the evidence to be tested. Um, and so basically, if if Mr. Ellington doesn't decide to do that on his own, then we'll ask a judge to order him to do it. And as far as time frame goes, no, it just depends on there's there's just a lot of wheels in motion right now is all I can all I can say. So the, there's so I can't tell you what the time frame would be for that. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lisa says, I'm still wanting to know what Michael Moorhead clutched in his hand when he was found. The autopsy says it is a fabric strip, but is it of his clothing, the other boys, or the killers? I would love to know the answer to that, too. Um, And there may be somebody out there, so somebody listening knows the answer to that. But uh, it's been a long time since I looked into it, like a couple years. But if, if my memory serves, it's never there's never any clear documentation that that fabric was ever identified. Uh, Zachary, do you have any idea on that? As far as I know, it's never been identified. Okay, that's 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 what I thought. As, as far as my memory went, I I thought that it was never identified. And if it was, it was never documented. But again, I could be wrong about that. So somebody knows, you know, somebody like Tank or whoever has been studying the case for a long time may know better than me. And if you do, please share with us. Matt says, Bob, if you could interview any one person from this entire case, who would it be, and what would you ask them? This includes any of the original West Memphis Police Department, prosecution team, and family members. Ooh, that's a really good question. I think that uh, Zach and I, you and I, you and I should both answer this. I have kind of an obscure one, not really obscure, because I don't think that anyone connected to the case other than the actual killer who wouldn't obviously admit to it, it would solve the case. I would love to interview, and I reached out to her a couple of years ago, and, and it didn't happen. Um, but I would love to interview Regina Meek, and and I would want to know why, when you were interviewed in 2007 or 9 or whenever that was, why did you completely change your story seemingly to protect Terry Hobbs? I mean, she she in her statements then, and, and even in some of her trial testimony, she gave provably false information. 
and and it, and it doesn't seem like things that could be a mistake. It seems intentional. Um, so I would like to interview her, and I'd like to know why she did that. Uh, it's it's slipping my mind. I can't think of the name right off the top of my head. But the the gentleman that actually found the boys, that's the person I'd want to interview. Uh, well, so there was Steve Jones, who was is, is he the one about? that was in the water? No, it was. Uh, I believe it was Mike Allen. I remember if it was Mike. I believe it was Mike Allen. So Steve Jones saw the shoe in the water, called everybody over, and if if I'm remembering correctly, it was Mike Allen who fell in the water and found Michael, and then Brian Ridge got in the water and found the other two boys. So yeah, I mean it would be one of I guess one of those three gentlemen to really ask questions about the scene, what they noticed on the scene. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think possibly weren't documented or were documented improperly. And if you get somebody that isn't, you know, I, I wouldn't want Ridge. I, I definitely probably wouldn't want Ridge. But uh, that that would be my the person I'd want to talk to. You know, along that line, I guess I would add to my list Mike Allen as well for one reason, and that is to know how or Ridge, how, probably better Ridge because you know Mike kind of Mike Allen kind of tripped over and Michael Moore and brought him up, but Ridge you know was you know down at his you know which is you know I've got plenty of problems with Ridge, but I, I will say I feel for the guy I've 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 been crawling around a lot of dark fires feeling around hoping not to find a dead body. I know how that feels, and so for for him to have to crawl through that water searching for that boys, and that's something I'm sure still haunts him, and, and, and I do feel for him because of that. But the question I would ask is, when he found the boys, how were they secured under the water? There's a lot of speculation. My belief is that they were um, that the sticks were used with, in conjunction with the bindings, like wrapped around the bindings, and then jammed down in the mud to keep them down. And I've, I've, people have written that that's what happened, but I've never, I've never seen any corroborated actual solid information about how they were in the water. So, um, that'd be a question I'd want to ask. Susie says, I read everything I can about the case and came across some real strange guys who apparently moved into the house at 1401 Goodwin in West Memphis a week before the murders. That house is located right across the road from the entrance into the woods. The neighbor across the street, Deborah Odinger, told police about the weird guys and Officer Hester went door to door and interviewed them. Sir Mikhail Williams and King David Beasley moved into this house. Have you heard of these two before, Bob? Yeah, we actually, um, we covered them in season five. It's been a long time ago, so I'd be making stuff up if I tried to remember much about them. But there was no, if I remember, there was no actual evidence that connected them to the, to the case. But yeah, the guy like, it, it, it kind of went right along with the satanic panic, if I remember correctly. You know, the guy wore like a robe and carried a staff and he went by King David. And, and, you know, you know, there were, there were definitely some, some strange guys, but that was, it was the same reason why Damien Eccles was pegged as a suspect because he was a strange guy that was into some weird stuff. So, you know, I don't think that's enough reason to consider anybody a suspect. Yeah. They were definitely covered in this season because I, I, I distinctly remember listening to it and hearing it. And, and kind of chuckling to myself about the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Our last question comes from John. Looking back over season five, the nons, the TV show, etc., how do you feel now looking back on taking such a high-profile case? Would you do it again? Would you hesitate? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I took this case. You know, I, I definitely don't look for cases that are high-profile. 
They are they're harder to cover. You know, it's you know, we do this investigation in real time. So literally almost week by week, you're learning the same things that I'm learning. So when you take a high profile case, one of the tricky parts is there are all these people out there, especially in, in this one, that have been studying the case for years that know way more about it than I do. And so, you know, in one way, that's good because there's people to, you know, correct me when I'm wrong. And, you know, I might read a document and, and come to an, uh, an opinion and they'll be like, yeah, but if you read these other three documents that contradicts that, you know, things that it would I may have never found or would have taken me a long time to find. So that's a benefit. The bad part of it is if people are very much into the case and have been for a long time, they tend to be pretty set in their theories of the case and you know we we've seen you know throughout the course of this coverage of this case i have befriended people who then later hated my guts you know because you know it was you know i'm looking at it and the evidence seems to indicate the west memphis three are innocent and they think they're innocent too and they want to help and we're friends and then throughout the course of my investigation you know, I determined that the, in my opinion, their theory of the case is not accurate, or I don't think that it's plausible. And then they're right back to, well, now, now we don't like you anymore. There was a lot, especially when we first covered, I, I think our admins, I want one more time, shout out our admins on the fa- admins on the fan page. They have gotten very, very good at handling things. And we were not ready when we started covering just some really nasty, contentious, the discussions happening and then some people that were, you know, people with that have been into this case so long, they've got multiple fake profiles and they were doing a lot. And so at that point I would have said, no, never. But now, you know, the, the admins have finally, you know, they, they've figured out that you're just not going to please everybody and people are going to bitch and complain if you kick people out, no matter what. So we're just going to keep things civil, no matter what. And they've done an awesome job of that. And it's a lot of work. I don't think people realize how much work it is for them to try to keep that page running civilly. And we and we get messages all the time from people that that say, you know, that they're in several West Memphis three groups and our group, you know, is the biggest for starters, over ten thousand people. And and with that many people, it's a good group with positive conversations. You know, it's not as contentious as other groups. And that is one hundred percent because of our admins. Um so now that they kind of have that under control. I definitely will never seek out any high profile cases, but you know the reason I sought this one out wasn't because it was high profile. It was because you know when I when I first watched all the documentaries and stuff on it, I realized that it's just the the victims in this case have never gotten justice. They seem to have been forgotten about. The you know most people there's still definitely a lot of people out there that are continuing to fight, but. For the most part, once the West Memphis Three were 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 released, everybody kind of forgot about the case. And I genuinely felt, and still to this day feel, that we can make a difference and we can solve this case and we can get justice for those three little boys, whether it was a high profile case or not. So I guess the the short answer is, I don't know. There would have to be a good reason. There would have to be a good reason. I would have to look at a case that's high profile like this, and there would I would have to be able to to at least see a way to make some movement in the case and potentially solve it. Otherwise I wouldn't take it. So before we wrap things up, I got one more question for you, Bob, as a lot of, you know, I I'm the co-host of the show, but I'm a listener first and, and it's important to me as a listener to know where we can go from here. 
So what is our next step, Bob? What can we as listeners do in this case to move things forward? Right now, the best thing that any of you can do is to continue to put pressure on Scott Ellington. You know, what we don't want is for there to be, you know, a wave, you know, the TV show aired and there was a wave of emails and messages and phone calls and then it dies down and gets forgotten about again. That's what I want. I don't want is for the these victims, the West Memphis Three, or the family members in these cases to be forgotten about. So I'll ask you and I'll continue to prompt you as we move through season eight to continue to put pressure. If you've called Scott Ellington and you've sent an email, call him again. Send another one. Send another message. Continue to be respectful and be persistent. If we're going to solve this case, I thoroughly believe the only way we're going to do that is going to be through science and forensics. All right, that's going to do it for questions this week. Yep, thank you, everybody, and thank you for all of your engagement and your support through Season 5. I am very excited to launch into our Season 8 case. We are just two days away, so make sure you turn in this Sunday, and we're going to begin our investigation into the murders of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. Their daughter, Deborah Perringer, was tried and convicted of their murders. Her case has been picked up by the Innocence Project of Texas, and they have asked us for our help. And there is a lot of work to do. This is an incredibly complex crime scene and an incredibly complex crime. And so it's going to take all of us to hopefully solve the murders of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.